Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson, and I want to thank you for joining me on our second episode. So in this episode of the Victory Podcast, I sat down with my pastor from childhood and adulthood and all of those great things, Robert Charles Blakes Jr., and we sat and talked about, uh, you know, managing and and coping with disasters. He talks a bit about losing his father as being one of the most challenging things he's had to do in his life. He also talks about uh, being a pastor during Hurricane Katrina, as well as some other topics. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy it. This is your host, Monique Watson, and I'm here with my guest for the evening, uh, Bishop Robert Charles Blakes Jr., which is always funny to me to actually have to say your <laughs> full name. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Pastor. Well, thank you for having me. I am so honored. Usually young people do not want to hear anything I have to say. So I'm honored that all millennials are not uh, have not turned a deaf ear to us old people. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. So maybe um, to get started, uh, maybe you can give the listeners a little background about yourself, kind of who you are um, and a little bit about yourself. Well, I am um, the short of my name is R.C. Blakes. I go by my first two initials. And I am a pastor, uh, 55 years old, presently, and um, born and raised in the city of New Orleans, born into um, a pastor's home, pastor's family. And um, I'm I'm second generation pastor, along with my brother. We pastor the same church that we were raised in, the church that our father pastored. And that church has uh, multiple locations between Louisiana and uh, Texas. I am uh, the husband of Lisa Blakes. I'm the father of three beautiful daughters and one uh, wonderful son. I'm an author. I write books. I have a women's empowerment ministry and movement uh, called Queenology that speaks to um, the empowerment of women from a fatherly perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm just an everyday average guy, I suppose. And, and I'm presently on this uh, interview, this call with you, and I'm excited about it. But yeah, so I wanted to talk about a couple topics. Um, so you mentioned in your description of yourself and, uh, you know, just a full disclosure for those listening, I've known Pastor R.C. for like most of my life. He married me and my husband. Um, I grew up in the church in New Orleans. Um, so known the whole Blanks family, hung out with all of the kids as they've grown up, those the younger, younger crew. 
And um, so super close and couldn't think of anyone better who I admire is like a kind of a second father in a way uh, to kind of interview and very insightful. Um, as he mentioned, a women's empowerment type of ministry is uh, one of the many segments to the ministry. And so I um, thought it would be good to kind of get some insights of uh, first kind of about working with your family members. So past in your case, it's pastoring. So it might be a little bit different than those who might work in another family business or work with their family members. But maybe you can talk about some of those challenges that you run into pastoring, especially now pastoring with your brother being, uh, you know, co-leads of a, uh, a, you know, multi, multi-state, multinational uh, church and how that working with your family goes. Um, it, it is it is a blessing and a challenge uh, to actually work with your family, be it in ministry or uh, in in business. It's um, it's a challenge because you have to constantly uh, respect the line uh, between what is personal, what is professional, or what is business. And quite often when people work with their family, um, many times they are wearing their personal family hat when they should be wearing their professional hat. And so in terms of working with my family, uh, that has been that has been a challenge, you know, just figuring out, um, for instance, you know, who makes the call, who's you know, whatever whatever the challenge is that is before us, uh, we have to figure out who's stronger in, in this particular respect and who should lead, you know, knowing when to fall back and knowing when it's your time to actually take the helm or take the, the steering wheel. Um, those things can be a challenge. And then being able to separate maybe disagreements or um, differences in terms of ministry or professional from our personal lives, you know, not carrying or, or vice versa, not carrying personal disagreements over into a professional or ministry setting or business setting. Um, you know, if, if you're working with someone other than your family, I mean, that's your coworker, period. And once once you're done with whatever that job is or that assignment is, you go home to your family. But when you work with your family and you 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 perform whatever the um, the function is in terms of ministry of business, you don't leave there and go home to your family. You, you, you it's all one and the same. So I think that's the greatest challenge. But I would say that it's a greater blessing, um, greater blessing than it is a challenge. Because when you work with your family, you never have to second guess uh, the motivation of people. You never have to second guess if they really have your back. Um, you know, it's it's a um, it's a it's a tight rope, but it's it's worth it's worth the effort uh, when all parties involved are really giving their uh, to it. You know, giving everything they have to it. And that that is the case with my family. You know, everybody really gives it their all, and everybody has uh, the right heart. And so we do it well. We do it without a lot of friction. That's not always the case with families that work together in ministry. Uh, but in in our case, it is. 
it is um, you know it's 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 without a lot of friction, and it's because we we really go overboard in terms of respecting those lines and having that you know mutual respect for one another and and understanding our roles and understanding our strengths and our weaknesses. There are situations that I simply get out of the way because there are situations that my brother's better suited to to manage and there are situations that he does the same for me. So it's not about uh, who's the boss. A lot of families get caught up in that, who's the boss and egos clash. But if you can, if you can kill the ego, uh, great things can really be accomplished. And uh, I think my family is a, is a testament to that. I would say I definitely, definitely agree. Um, for sure, seeing, you know, at, from a, you know, not intimately involved into the inner workings, but like as a, you know, uh, parishioner, for lack of a better term, we definitely, uh, I've, I've visited other churches where you can see some of that family issues that arise, whether that's directly related to the specific leading of how they do everyday activities related to to the ministry, but you can definitely notice when there's a cohesion and when there's not. And when there's something, whether you know the actual ins and outs of the background story yeah. of what's what's actually going on, but you can see that there's usually some sort of something's not right. Somebody's something's not clicking and people aren't it. on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Especially in a, in a place of worship, right? It's where the, the spirit is either there or it isn't, and, or you're trying to make it make him appear in <laughs> which that ain't which doesn't happen this is no conjuring or something like that so trying to fabricate a move of god but yeah like you said it's either there or it's not and i thank god in our case you know it is it's authentic it's um it's natural and um you know it it's it's real for sure for sure so in that same vein of, of working with family and family, so as you said, you're a second second generation uh, pastor. Your your father, the prophet uh, Robert uh, Blake Sr., was a, a large personality human being, uh, father for you and fa- spiritual father for many. So how was it? You know, I know leading up to as as he was aging and things that you could tell you all were being groomed to eventually kind of take over in that space and and lead the church and then um how was that as far as when that actual transition when when the prophet went on um to heaven and kind of dealing with that as as both a child of of this is your your actual father and then do the second side of that coin being this is your spiritual father so that dual loss of both your natural father and your spiritual father and then having to step up uh to then lead can you kind of talk about some of that um both the loss of a parent in itself and then the unique challenge that you that you have around being a, a pastor at the same time well um i was i think i was about 40 48, uh, 40, going on 49 when he passed. And, um, uh, you know, though some would say, well, man, you know, you had your, you did a long time. I did. Uh, but it doesn't matter how old you are or how old they are. 
uh, I believe the pain is 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 still the same. You know, I sit and I talk with younger people who've lost parents in their 20s or their 30s. And uh, our stories are the same, you know, the pain, uh, the sense of what's well, it's a it's a sense of trepidation and fear, actually, because, you know, you, you don't realize it. But subconsciously, when you've had a good parent, you know, a parent that's really been there and done his or her job in your life, um, when you've had that kind of parent subconsciously, um, you view them as your foundation. And they really are, you know, though they, they groom you, they develop you, they raise you to be an independent individual even beyond them. Um, you know, just the idea of existing without them um, is just unbelievable. And when you're suddenly faced with the idea that, you know, maybe this person that has been Superman in my life as a child uh, and even as an adult child, is suddenly gone. Um, that's unthinkable. You know, you you don't you don't have a you don't have a plan for that. You don't know how to uh, adjust. You don't know how to resume life. You know, just as a as a natural child. And and so I went through all of that, the grieving process of, you know, just uh, thinking about. Um, not another conversation, no more counseling sessions. Uh, here's the, here's the one person in the world that, um, if I, if I got into some kind of, uh, challenge, you know, this was my bailout, you know, he was my bailout. Well, I don't have that anymore. Thinking about it, you know, as, as, as a natural child. And then you compound, you compound that issue with being um, in ministry with him and he being your pastor and he being the head of the ministry that you pastor in and he being this larger than life figure, you know, this charismatic, very, you know, highly spiritual uh, figure. And now all of a sudden he's gone and uh, the people say, okay, now it's your turn. And you're you're trying to figure out now how do I do this because I don't necessarily possess his gifts and my personality is different than his and my approach is different than his and um, people you know I have his I have his name by the way I'm Robert Blake's junior he was senior so people are going to expect Robert Blake's the old version, not necessarily the new version. So you battle in your mind with that. How do I do ministry now? Do I change? Do I, do I remain authentic to, you know, uh, do I remain authentic, you know, to, to who I really am? Um, because you don't want to, you don't want to step up to the plate and then have the ministry that he spent 50 years building unravel because people say, oh, well, you know, the brand has changed, you know, if you were putting it in business terms or, you know, it's not the same. You know, he's not he's not his daddy or they're not their father. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of time to effectively grieve as a son for having to step into the the larger than life shoes of being his successor. Right. And um, and that was something that um, kind of really overwhelmed me. It it was, you know, having to step into his shoes in in some way was a positive thing because it 
it, it, it allowed me to work through my grief. I had to, you know, I had a lot to keep me preoccupied in terms of how do I stabilize this ministry? And that was a massive task. Um, but then at the same time, having to step into those shoes immediately, he died on a Thursday morning about one o'clock and seven o'clock that evening, I was in, in, in his church doing service because wow. I realized that I had to press into it because if I didn't, it could have really stalled me for longer than would have been healthy for the ministry. So I jumped in immediately. Wow. Um, what it did not do was it did not allow me like, like normal people do. It did not allow me to grieve on schedule. So I had to grieve in spurts. And so it took me years to be able to get to the point where um, I had grieved effectively enough to be able to have a conversation like this. You know, he's been gone now, I think going on seven years or something like that. And, you know, for the first four years of that, I could not have had a conversation like this without becoming emotional because though the years had passed, uh, the responsibility did not allow me the time to really completely grieve, um, you know, on schedule is the way I put it. So I had to grieve when when life allowed me. Mm -hmm. And um, within the last, you know, three or three years or so, um, I came to that place where I've really processed that. Um, but, you know, it's 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 a bigger challenge than I wish upon anyone. You know, it, it's such a challenge when you think about the loss of a parent. Uh, it's such a challenge that I actually grieve for my children, thinking about the day will come when they will have to uh, put me to rest or put their mother to rest. Um, it's it's um, you know, it's bigger than religious cliches, you know, you, you, you know, and I would say to anyone, uh, when a person is, is dealing with the transition of a loved one, you know, a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, the last thing you should do is to go into their, you know, space with a lot of religious cliches, you know, sometimes right. the best thing you can do is just say, you know, I'm here and I'm praying and I love you and, and leave it at that. Um, but yeah, it, it was certainly the greatest test of my life, I promise you. And it still proves to be the greatest test of my life. It, it grew me in ways and it strengthened me. You know, it's, it, there's the saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you go through something like that, you come out on the other side um, of it with a greater tenacity. You know, it's like, if I made it through this, what else can life throw at me that I cannot handle, you know? Right. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a positive that I take from it. That's a positive that I take from it. Um, did I touch on everything you wanted me to touch on with that? No, I think absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think my only one follow-up question on that would be, um, so did you at any time, now you mentioned, you know, like being taken on the full mantle and kind of being, enveloped into now leading the ministry um did at any point did you ever like seek any like counseling or any kind of uh whether that's spiritual counseling or like psychological counseling and in, in, in struggling with that um 
loss or or not? I mean, either way, there's no right answer or wrong answer, but just I curious for the listeners. I did not. I did not. Um, I did not seek um, any kind of counseling. Um, and that was, to be honest with you, you know, in retrospect, that was a a massive mistake and a very very risky um, behavior uh, because I was really in a in a in a broken state and I was holding it together just by the skin of my teeth and a lot was riding on me and when I look back over it now it was nobody but God that really kept me together and carried me through that because had I fallen apart um you know who knows what would have been the outcome so when I look back on it in retrospect there's no way in the world that I would have tried to process all of that without you know the assistance of someone to help me to unpack my thoughts and my feelings during that time but as you know um, being African-American and coming out of um, the deep south a city like New Orleans we're kind of directly or mostly indirectly trained against um, seeking any kind of counsel. You know, there's this thing, don't, don't share your business, your personal business with people and all of that kind of thing. So we're, we're trained, which is a massive mistake, uh, to keep that stuff in and to, to try to process things that are above your pay grade on your own. Um, mm-hmm. It was nobody but God that kept me together because I should have, honestly, I should have, I should have broken a thousand times. And uh, if I had to do it over again, I would have been in somebody's office um, the week or the week of my father's death. I would have been in in somebody's office. One of the things that I think uh, definitely prevented me was never that I was against counseling or therapy, anything like that. But one of the things that prevented me is that being from a city like New Orleans, as you know, it's a very small place and everybody knows everybody. And so it's kind of hard to uh, when you when you're when you come from a family that is as well known, it's kind of hard to feel like your innermost secrets are really safe with anybody because everybody's kind of connected. It's not like a a Chicago or a New York City or you know Los Angeles where you can go on the other side of town and uh, you may be an international figure. Nobody knows you on the other side of town. It's a small little city. And so I think that worked against my making the right decision to actually seek counseling. Um, I did not seek any spiritual counseling because again, this was my pastor. You know, I, I did not have anybody I had no other um, prominent older leaders uh, in my life that I I revered or uh, esteemed to that level. This was my past and he was now gone. So, yeah, so I did not for those reasons. It makes sense. And not that therapy is necessary for everybody or or not necessary for people, but it definitely is, is something to to see that you can you can't some people are capable and can can do it without it and then others you know need that help and need those assistance and that's I think why God puts you know people like psychiatrists psychologists what have you family family therapists 
all the different kinds of resources out there for those who need it for sure. So, yeah. Absolutely. I agree. I guess one of the last big buckets we can talk about is um, being from New Orleans. Um, you know, it's a big, small town, one of the, in my opinion, greatest cities in the world. Um, and one of the first things, and I know you get this as you travel around the country and the world, the first thing people are going to ask you post-2005 is, how were you affected about Hurricane Katrina? You know, what's your, where were you when that happened? Kind of like if you ask somebody from New York, you know, about where were they on 9-11, so as long as they're like, oh, weren't born in 2004 or something like that. You know, there's adults now running around, not born, not experiencing 9-11. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit about, because some, many people in the world and listening to this podcast have never or will never really experience a large uh natural disaster or major disaster like physical disaster in their life so maybe you can kind of talk about your what i call you know your evacuation story everyone's got their katrina story of either how they rode out the storm or how they evacuated how they then rebuild and kind of some of that journey to go from you know for those on the on the podcast who aren't listening to the podcast and who aren't from new orleans Previous to Hurricane Katrina, at least from my, I can speak to my perspective of ev hurricane evacuation was a little bit more of a like evacuation vacation. It like yeah. never really hit directly exactly. in, in New Orleans. It did like way back in like Bet Hurricane Betsy was what the most, the, the, the previous to that, the most devastating kind of, of recent history hurricane to the New Orleans area. People were kind of like, well, you know, I survived Betsy. I'm not going to evacuate. It's not a big deal. We'll get some rain, maybe a little bit of flooding, whatever, whatever. And even to the fact of certain parts of the city of New Orleans, just given that New Orleans is in a bowl, can flood on a rain event just, just a you know, a, a Tuesday. Um, so maybe you can talk about, you know, your your whole Katrina story a little bit. Well, um, when Katrina um, was approaching the city of New Orleans, I actually uh, was planning to stay uh, in the city. It was my father then who called me and told me that, um, well, he kind of demanded that I would leave, you know, because I, I had made plans to stay and uh, oh, to the point, and it's not like prophet was a was a gentle gentle soul oh, i'm sure no. he gently very much was like no. maybe you should consider no. about this <laughs> no no it wasn't wasn't it wasn't a suggestion it was a, a very strong command <laughs> from my pastor my boss my father he said you know no uncertain terms you're getting out of here today and I said, okay, uh, grudgingly, I said, okay, I will. But just, you know, such a diehard, I actually went to church that Sunday morning. And normally we would have two services that uh, on a Sunday morning. And um, that's, that particular Sunday morning, <laughs> we had five people that came to church. Five people. And wow. so um, since I since we started late leaving, you know, for evacuation purposes, everybody was going to Houston. Um, Lisa and I and the kids, we got in uh, three cars 
and we drove towards Atlanta, finally making it to Atlanta after God knows how many hours. And uh, the storm, you know, seemed to have passed. And like you said, you know, for most of us, it's always like a, an evacuation that's more like a vacation. And uh, watching the news, and then I, I, I see that um, the levees broke or whatever were breached, and and uh, the water just kind of uh, invaded the city. And, and I watched neighborhoods and areas that I was so familiar with completely flooded out. And I'm looking at bodies floating uh, in the city that I grew up in, the city that I called home. So I was in really a state of shock. I could not leave the television. I was traumatized. Um, East New Orleans, where where our church, that at that time, that was the only church that I pastored. I was a one location pastor, which was a wonderful life for me. Um, that area was completely inundated and they really had talks of it never, East New Orleans never coming back again. Talks of making it green space. And, um, and so by the time it was all said and done, um, we realized that we could not get back into the city of New Orleans. So my family was in Houston. So we made our way to Houston, Texas. And uh, the news just got worse and worse and worse. And so we had a lot of our members that were in Houston. And so we just started meeting um, as we waited to be able to get back into the city of New Orleans. We, we lived in, ho in a hotel, uh, I forget exactly what little brand hotel it was, but we lived in a hotel for two months and we worshiped at the University of Houston uh, me and some of the members from, from New Home Family Worship Center and others from other churches, but from New Orleans. And um, that church ended up, we ended up planting, literally planting that church in, in the city of Houston, Texas. And then finally, when we could get back into the city of New Orleans, uh, one of our locations, one of three of our locations, uh, had gotten 16 feet of water. Wow. Um, our church, the church that you grew up in, East New Orleans, the roof, uh, the roofs were torn off of uh, the two buildings and the water came in through the, you know, through the ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just, uh, wow. It was, it was at that time, it was prior to my father's passing, it was the worst, it was the worst experience of my life. It was, um, I had spent 18 years building that church, building that congregation in East New Orleans, and 95% um, of it was, the, the congregation was um, dispersed across the country or to other parts of the area. And uh, it took us years, a few years actually, to get back to preparing the, the roof to getting back into um, our East New Orleans facility. So in the meantime, we, we just, um, we worked from our main location, which was the location my father was the pastor, the immediate pastor. We had multiple services in there. And then eventually we got East New Orleans back up and I was flying back and forth between New Orleans and Houston on uh, Southwest every Sunday morning 
trying to do Bible studies and it was it was it was so extremely taxing. Um, had the same ministry had the same bills, but a fraction of the income because the people weren't there anymore. And uh, so when I when I go across the country and you know people, uh, I you know say well, why why is it taking so long to recover from Katrina or you all should be over that now. You can't really speak to that unless you've had your entire life actually wiped out overnight uh, and have to start over. I think when Katrina hit, I was 40 years old. And so it meant that I am starting over, you know, in, in, in the middle of my life, I'm having to start over again. You're talking about a midlife crisis. I'm having to start over again. And so processing all of that and having to, you know, find the faith, finding something positive, bills and expenses and, and all of this stuff piling up, trying to keep my family together, trying to educate my minor kids at the time. Uh, we, we decided to educate them in Houston because New Orleans, um, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And so uh, beginning at that point, I started living a life where I was separate from my family. You know, I started traveling back and forth to New Orleans and between New Orleans and Houston. My family was in Houston and I'm traveling back and forth. It, it, it changed everything about my life. Um, it's just been within recent years that um, I've actually processed that and, and I've been able to accept a new normal because for years after Katrina um I would I would you know go to sleep and and say well tomorrow I'll wake up and it'll be normal I'll feel normal you know my ministry will feel normal my life will feel normal and I kept reaching for that and the bible says right. hope deferred makes the heart sick you know you keep hoping for something mm -hmm. that never shows up it it breaks you on the inside and right. so one day I had to just completely grieve. Uh, I had to completely grieve Katrina. And I had to accept the fact that my life now had uh, a new normal. Right. And when I accepted that and I articulated that, it was like a weight lifted off of me. And then I kind of rolled my sleeves up and I got busy with embracing the, you know, the, the new normal that... Um, God has chosen to bestow upon me and life is delivered to me. And so now we're in a place where uh, it does not feel the same. It's very different, uh, but we're, we're postured to do greater things than ever, you know. I, and there are a lot of things that came out of um, the disruption of Katrina that I believe um, has set my life and set our ministry on on a path to do greater things than we probably ever would have done had we stayed in that comfort zone uh, that we called normal prior to Katrina. Right. So, you know, you have to find, um, I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, the marks of a mentally healthy person is one that is able to find the positive in anything. And so now I'm in the business of just, you know, finding and focusing on the positives. 
And Katrina has certainly brought a lot of positives. It's brought a lot of uh, great people into my life, new people, but great people. It's brought a lot of old people out of my life, which, you know, <laughs> has been a challenge at times. But um, and it's expanded me. It's expanded my faith. It's expanded my experience. It's made me more relatable to people who suffer uh, because, quite honestly, the, the first real suffering I did was after Katrina. Up until that point, I did not really know what suffering was, you right. know. Um, and I think everybody, at some point in life, you have to uh, you have to feel the sting of suffering because it really makes you relatable to most of the world. We don't realize that we're coddled and we're pampered until we're not. And that's what Katrina did for me. It was a wake-up call that really grew me up. And it developed some things in me that I probably never would have had outside of uh, that experience. For sure. For sure. Thank I hope you I'm not sure. rambling. hope I'm not. No, rambling. no, absolutely not. I think it's it, Katrina was one of the most impactful things for anyone who's from New Orleans, grew up in New Orleans, has any real love or association with New Orleans. My quick elevator version of Katrina for me I was it was my first week of classes in in school in college so it's my fir first week of courses so I was kind of removed from it I got a call from my parents um saying that they were going to evacuate they didn't do like y'all and do take um a couple of the cars like they probably should have um they evacuated and my grandparents actually evacuated which was surprising because they were ones that of the of the breed of folks that said well we survived Hurricane Betsy, and so we don't evacuate in general. And so they also evacuated my great grandmother, who was alive at the time as well. So they all evacuated and went to my aunt's house, who was living in Houston at the time. And her husband is from New Orleans as well, so their family evacuated there. So, you know, and then as you mentioned, levee bricks and everything like that. So they had 20, 20 plus people living in a, you know, how a they have a no to be fair my my aunt is a doctor and she has a very you know very large sized house but it's never intended for 20 some odd adults <laughs> and children to live in right so my parents quote unquote bed and i use air quotes which translates well on a podcast um bed was in the floor of the master closet in their house like they had wow. the older people yeah they had a pallet like on the floor in the master closet because um, they they let the you know the the kids that were in there I think it was just as far as young young kids was just my um, my cousin Christian and Gabrielle I think Gabrielle was born I'm pretty sure yeah so they were in a bed they shared a bed together and then the other like elder parents like grandparent age folks got the actual beds and bedrooms um, and then they, everyone else was kind of getting where you fit in. Uh, for a while and then my parents eventually moved out of there and rented a house not far away in in Houston for a while and then they did return to New Orleans at the time uh, they lived in graduate housing for a while um, for a couple months it seemed like every break I went home we were living somewhere else um, so yeah graduate housing because my mom was getting her PhD at the time so we're in graduate housing and then we moved, then they moved from there to a family friend in a different part of the city that didn't get any flooding after my grandparents moved out of there. They kind of moved and we kind of been shadowing 
kind of back to New Orleans, moved into that, like another two bedroom house in New Orleans, and then finally rebuilt completely to move back into our family home. So that was a thing. And and to really, I think the best perspective and my actually my uncle Rustin, when he was interviewed for something for, I think it was uh, the, uh, oh, what's the guy from the Saints with ALS? Um, Gleason. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Gleason, um, Steve Gleason Foundation, they did like a interview 10 years after Katrina with my uncle Rustin, who owned a pharmacy in the lower ninth ward and they lost their flooding and, you know, like a number of people lost their businesses and things like that. Um, and he equated as far as the impact, and this it's goes to your point about people asking, like, how can y'all not be over it, uh, over it already, because it's so long ago. And then he equated it to, you know, if you, if your house caught on fire, you could go to your neighbors, your grandparents or something like that, get help, and, you know, everyone else is good. In Katrina, it's like everyone's house caught on fire. That's right. Everybody. Everybody. So every kind of network like where you'd be like, oh, I could just go and get help from here. And everyone caught on fire at all the same time. So that's why it's kind of a hard bit to rebuild and really kind of change for folks. So so I think definitely you really captured um, the challenges there, especially it's a unique perspective that you have with being a, a pastor is a different vibe as a as a as a calling and profession um as far as when something like that happens not only are you thinking about your nuclear family and how to you know rebuild and what you're going to do you have to think about how can how can i return my quote-unquote business and my church and the needs of my people at the same time so it's definitely a unique perspective for sure yes ma'am it um it was the greatest challenge of my life. Um, And so many people uh, suffered in ways that they can't even articulate. Uh, We have members, had members, should I say, that uh, actually died uh, in, in their, in their homes because of the waters. Mm. Um, So many stories, you know, so many stories. And um, it's, um, it'll be with you for the rest of your life, to be quite honest with you. Right. Yeah, I'll be talking about Katrina um, when I'm 100 years old, and I plan on being here that long. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are the main kind of buckets. So just to kind of put a buttonhole, a couple of things. Last thing, like a quick note. So you've been through what I would say a lot of uh, amazing, challenging um, circumstances throughout your life, especially sounds like almost, you know, a lot of the ones you referenced with Katrina and loss of your father is like kind of in that over 40 kind of, you know, yeah. usually folks are hitting a certain stride, you know, you're in your 40s, you get to, you know, things are just kind of usually kind of rolling with rolling with it. Or I imagine that's kind of how I envision people, you know, it, once you kind of hit a certain point. Yeah. Um, and so maybe um, one kind of take home message for folks who may be going through their various own trials, whether it's trials in their career, trials on a personal level with relationships or loss or something. What are some of your um, a couple of maybe one or two points, maybe in addition to the stuff you've already shared and maybe even one or two scriptures that are like a good 
go-to that you kind of meditate on or think about when you're going through some, or that you did use to think about when you were going through a lot of these kind of trials that you talked about? Well, um, I would say to a person that is facing one of these, you know, a season like this, uh, where the unexpected, you know, kind of overwhelms your life, um, where you feel enveloped by pain, uncertainty, uh, fear, all of these things are reality. And all of us at some point in time in life, you know, we will experience that. For me, I didn't know that I would be starting my, my life and basically my ministry over again at 40 years old. I didn't know. Um, at 48, almost 49, I, I, you know, I wasn't, I still wasn't prepared for the death of my father. These are the two most traumatizing events in my life. And um, there are a few things I learned along the way through both of those experiences. Um, the first thing I learned is that if God allows you to come into something by his sovereignty, if he allows something to touch your life, he has also empowered you to to manage it, to master it, and to, to come through it, and to come over it, if you trust him. The second thing I learned is that, um, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, some kind of way we have to give voice to the pressure that we feel on the inside when we're caught up in one of these seasons. You know, um, my saving grace was that I'm a very transparent person, so I would speak my feelings, even though I did not go to therapy person, um, in conversation, um, even in terms of ministry, I would actually speak how I felt and giving voice to it empowered me. It, it released that pressure. And then having just the tenacity, you know, just having that that confidence in God, that even though I don't understand exactly what's going on, I don't know what you're doing, I'm not really pleased with you right now. And some days I felt like that about God. I know that you have a plan. And I know that my life does not end like this. My life does not end on a down note. That somehow, some kind of way, you're going to pull me through this. And though it may feel like it's the end of the world now. There's something inside of this experience that is building me for a greater future. And the scripture that um, that I held on to is found in James 1, verse 2. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, verse 3, worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. There's something that is being added to your life, into your spiritual, your emotional stature. When you're in one of those seasons, God is building you. He's adding substance to your life. Because at the end of the day, our lives are not our own. Our lives are God's call. And our lives, if we're going to live our lives to the glory of God, we must mm -hmm. live our lives to the edification of men, others. 
sometimes you have to feel it before God will empower you to heal it. So some of the things that you're going through today are really for other people tomorrow. Mm. That's some of what I, I've taken from my experiences. That's awesome. That, that's really good. There was one um, scripture I'll add to, and then we'll get into the how folks can find you on social media and learn more about New Home and, and your ministry and especially some of the women's empowerment stuff, which we could do a whole nother podcast interview on some of that. Um, but one verse that actually this Sunday my pastor was talking about um, was in the past. Let me say this. The pastor here that I have locally, you're still always my <laughs> pastor. Like, Let me backtrack that. Uh, <laughs> but the pastor uh, that's here in San Jose that I go to, um, he had a from Romans chapter five, uh, verses three through five. And I think this is the New King James Version. I don't know. Um, but it says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And mm. it's one of those things. Yeah, it was one I had. And I was like, you know, you know, Romans is pretty popular you know you spent a lot of time in Romans across different ministries and stuff like that but that was when I hadn't really I missed or forgot about or something I don't know but it really spoke to me but it's just the that I, the same idea of there's there's confidence in knowing as a child of God that there is more to your story there's yeah. never in the story in any story in the Bible ever been that that was the they went through a thing and boom the end absolutely from whether you're talking about jesus himself of dying on the cross it wasn't like that he died and the end and and in the book call it done from you know david uh just countless stories in the bible of something happened and it was Job is the ultimate of of that whole thing of, you know, losing his family, losing his health, losing all all that was that made Job Job to that point. And still at the end is something greater than than what he could have foreseen going through it and having that in your mind when you're going through something. And it's easy to say when you've made it out on the easier to say when you made it on the other side. And I know a lot of people. And for those listening, if you're going through something right now, you're probably saying, but you don't understand. I'm going through this and this is how I feel. And this is why I feel this way because of X, Y and Z. And maybe I didn't have a good parent or maybe I didn't have these other things that some of some people are blessed and afforded to, but understand that is never the end of your story. And it's never the end because God, you know, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, never to harm you, give you hope in a future and give you in your expected end. Right. So it's that idea of that. There is more. There is never a period to the story. There's always a comma or semicolon, yes. something that continues it. Yes. Yes, you are correct, ma'am. You are preaching here today. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And we're standing all over the chapel. We're standing. <laughs> we did the benediction. No, I'm kidding. Um, all right. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for your time. 
this evening. I know it's later, especially you're on the East Coast right now visiting. You're in Con- Philadelphia, is it? I'm in Philadelphia. I was in Connecticut three days ago, four days ago. Oh, my. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so I'll be quick. We'll just kind of wrap up with um, what are some ways that folks who are maybe interested in learning more about R.C. Blake's or about New Home or or what have you? What are some ways on the different maybe social media platforms or websites that you can direct some folks to? Um, they can find me on Facebook. Um, your mother's the one that actually created my first Facebook page. She told me I needed to have it, actually. Mm. They can find <laughs> me on Facebook at R.C. Blake's. And... Um, of course, on YouTube at R.C. Blake's uh, Jr., uh, they can kind of get a feel for my message. And actually, they can kind of go through and see a lot of my um, uh, my teachings on queenology, the women's empowerment stuff, the father-daughter talk. Um, of course, they can go to my website at uh, rcblakes.com, or they can go to the ministry's website at comehometonewhome.org. Uh, Instagram is R.C. Blakes. Just, just look for R.C. Blakes. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. And uh, I'd love to connect with you. Awesome. And I'm going to link um, all, all of Pastor Blake's uh, social media, the website, and all the YouTube channel as well to the, to the notes. But awesome. Thank you so much for uh for agreeing to be on this podcast and um thanks for your time thank you my dear i love you love you too pastor well i'd like to thank my guest rc blakes jr uh for joining me and if you're looking for more information on how to reach out to pastor blakes um, or more information about his different ministries that he mentioned around women's empowerment and queenology and just a good host of good information from him. Uh, I'll be linking on the Victory Podcast website, which is thevictorypodcast.com, uh, links to his YouTube, uh, Facebook, and other different social media platforms that you can reach out to him on. I'll also be, you can also find links to our social media platforms. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram and Facebook as The Victory Pod on Twitter and Instagram and The Victory Podcast on Facebook. So you can find all those and more. Hopefully you found this episode helpful to you and feel free to reach out with your comments, questions on thevictorypodcast.com and hit us on that contact form. Stay tuned for more content coming in the future. And as I sign off on every episode, every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work so we can be victorious.